Hello, and welcome to another episode of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so I wanted to share with you guys a couple things. Thing number one is the podcast this week on Sensibly Speaking Podcast is with um, Dr. Natalie Feinblatt, who was one of the professional consultants who was used in the Scientology Aftermath finale, the two-hour season finale, which I hope you guys saw this last week. Um, Dr. Feinblatt is awesome, and we had a really wonderful podcast talking about Scientology, cult recovery, uh, different aspects of that, so I hope you guys will check that out. And um, the other good news I wanted to share with you guys, and it's, it's, you know, I don't really want to make this bigger than it is, but it is kind of fun, is my wife and I are out, as you are watching this, on vacation for the first time ever. I am actually taking a, a real vacation. It's not, our honeymoon was kind of a vacation, but that's really about the only vacation I've ever really had. So, <laughs> so this is a real one. And uh, we are gone for a week, and we're going to uh, Spain. And I'm not. We're going to spend uh, some time in Barcelona, and it should be awesome. And um, it's been in planning for literally over a year now. So it's really nice to watch to to have this finally come to fruition. We are excited. We are nervous. Um, I have pre-recorded and pre-set up the entire week on my channel here, so there's not going to be any skip in content or anything for you guys. Um, so it's been pretty busy the last week getting all that done, but, uh, but definitely, uh, you know, a labor of love. I love doing this work on my channel for you guys. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because I thought some of you might, uh, might know that that's a little bit more significant than other people going on vacations because this is literally the first time. And also Melissa and I are very, very pumped because we've never been to Europe ever. So, uh, you know, I've been to Australia, I've been to Canada, although Canada was really a hotel for, for a few days. I didn't really get out that much there. Uh, so this is going to be, anyway, this is going to be a lot of fun. So we're really looking forward to it. And, um, and thanks everybody in advance for any well wishes you have or anything. And of course, if something horrible happens, uh, well, you know, okay, sera, sera. <laughs> But we're looking forward to nothing but a good time and then coming back and, and continuing the content for you guys. Um, also, something I wanted to throw out, and I know this is um, a little bit of a bugbear, a little bit of a, you know, prickly thing, and, I, and I, I, I have tended to even avoid talking about it at all. But I wanted to let you guys know that the research track on emotions and on the e-meter have taken a really turbo-charged lift. Um, there, you know, sometimes when you're on a track of research, you don't know what it is you're looking for, but you know you don't have it yet. And so I, at all this time, I've known I haven't quite hit on what is it I'm looking for that is going to like make this all make sense to me so I can then communicate Hubbard's nonsense and the truth about these things as you know or at least the science as best we know it at this point is really how I should put that um, but I've come across some stuff recently that has really blown open some things and I'm very very excited about it and um, and very very inspired by it actually so I'm really looking forward to putting that content together for you guys as soon as we get back and that's gonna be um, long awaited I know but again 
you know, I just have to, I have to stay true to myself with my content that I'm putting something out there that's actually true, it's real, it's gonna last, and it's not gonna just be some fluff, yeah, Scientology's all bullshit sort of thing. So anyway, just wanted to kind of throw that out there for you guys too, because it has been quite a while and um, this Basics of Scientology series does need to get finished and I think I have found the final linchpin on that to get that done. And that's been a real bugbear for me for quite some time. So uh, that's why it's been so, you know, so slow in coming. So anyway, good news on that front. It really, truly good news. And now let's get on with your questions. Steve Silvestri. Perhaps some of the most damning evidence against the Church of Scientology being a legitimate religion are their own promotional videos, which to most anyone outside the cult are completely over the top and outrageous in their general tone and claims, often with a vagueness mainly seen in infomercials and other advertisements which promise miracle cures to your problems slash ailments. Do you know how these commercials, quote unquote, for example, the Golden Age of Tech Phase 2 video on YouTube, are produced. How do they recruit people to make these testimonials? Are these people truly this excited over Scientology and the tech? I would also assume the aforementioned video is mainly produced for church consumption, not the general public, in order to rally the troops and open their wallets up a bit. But I guess what I'm really trying to drive at is this. Who in their right mind oversees the production of these videos? Watching them is like the equivalent to snorting a line of amphetamines. Whose idea was it to set the tone for these videos, indeed most of their video production? Isn't there anyone in production who thinks to themselves, maybe we don't need to push it to 11 this time? Needless to say, these are highly produced videos and I know that every design decision is deliberate. Okay, Steve, cool questions here. Um, so let me tell you what I know. Gold, Golden Era Productions is a, um, is a division of the Church of Scientology International, and they, had, they classically were the ones who were producing these kind of videos. I believe Scientology Media Productions has probably taken that over, and they're based in Los Angeles, just a few blocks away from the Big Blue Complex. Regardless of who's producing these, these th that, those teams of people video producers, editors, you know, writers, these guys are the ones who get together and put this put these videos together. They do it on orders of David Miscavige. He is the ultimate authority in how all of this gets done. He is the one who sets the tone. If you're wondering where all this comes from, it all comes from him. None of the videos that you ever see about Scientology have ever been released without first him approving them. And I, I'm sure that that is every single video property. I could be wrong about that. It might not be every single one, but as I understand the approval lines and how things work when it comes to the promotion and marketing of Dianetics and Scientology, all things go through Miscavige's desk. Uh, and yeah, he's got this really over-the-top kind of stylistic approach to producing Scientology promotional videos. And yes, the video you saw in all the videos, these what we used to call success videos, because they are success stories. They're little one-liners that, you know, promote the success of services or Scientology materials or lectures. 
So those, uh, those videos are used as uh, teasers for the events or they are used in the events to promote, you know, the latest re and greatest releases so that people will loosen their wallets a bit and want to buy the latest and greatest releases. That's what it's all about is those videos are promotion to Scientologists to get them to buy, you know, the latest and greatest. Um, and all the video productions I know are are fairly over the top, but it's those success videos specifically that really blow people's minds. They were never meant for broad public consumption, ever. Nobody ever expected people outside the Church of Scientology, in other words, non-Scientologists, to see those videos. Now, how they're put together, I was involved with a couple of those, not from the production angle, but actually being in them. I don't think you've ever seen me in one. I don't think I made the final cut. Uh, and the one that I was filmed for, but I've watched a number of these get put together. And it's really just a small video crew goes to, gets sent down to Los Angeles or to Clearwater, Florida, mainly is where they get these things done. They might do them at St. Hill or other Sea Org bases, and they just take existing, uh, usually staff or upper-level Scientologists or even Sea Org members sometimes, and they ask them, tell me about, you know, what you think of whatever the service or materials or lectures were that are being promoted. Um, and they are obviously encouraging that these people, you know, they don't put words in their mouth, but they say, what was the best thing you, you know, you enjoyed about this? What could you say about it? And people really usually go on these whole rolls. You only see an edited down one or two lines of what they're saying, but usually these people have been sitting there for five or ten minutes going on and on about whatever their success or, or uh, you know, revelations or epiphanies were. Uh, what they call cognitions or realizations in Scientology. So, uh, so they just sit Scientologists down and they, the Scientologists that they get though, all have to have clearance through the ethics officer. So you're never going to get somebody on video who's got any doubts or reservations or has expressed any problems or trouble with Scientology, at least not in the recent past, right? If they have, all of that has been sorted out and they have, you know, shown that they are good Scientologists in good standing. They have ethics clearance, in other words. And that's actually a formal procedure that the, that the shoot crew has to do. They usually what they do is they go to the uh, some org staff member like the in, in, in certain areas of the I won't get into the specifics, but they'll go to certain staff who might know who are the winning Scientologists, right? Who are the guys we should be talking to, who should be in these success videos? And they'll come up with a list of those names. They'll send the list to the ethics officer. They get ethics clearance, and uh, they make sure the person's cool. Then they go approach the person, you know, hey, we want your uh, thing. Or they might do it the other way around. They might do, they might film the person, but then get the ethics clearance, regardless of what sequence they do it in. That's, that is required. I know that for sure, right? Because you don't want any of those SPs or PTSs sneaking into the success videos. Uh, anyway, so that's kind of how they're produced and how the whole thing is put together. It's all just, you know, gung-ho people sharing their Scientology gung-ho-ness. <laughs> and, um, and it is Miscavige, ultimately, who sets that, that tone. If, uh, it, without any question, it's 100% uh, his baby. Kathy Reynolds, just saw your podcast where you talked about the possibility that L. Ron Hubbard suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy. Could this explain his paranoia related to his actions against Paulette Cooper? 
In reading Tony Ortega's book, I really get the idea that Hubbard was obsessed with shutting up Paulette. Or was it just that he could not cower her into silence no matter what he had done? No one else has suffered as much as Paulette, yet come out so much stronger. Okay, uh, thanks for this question, Kathy. Uh, yeah, Paulette Cooper is definitely the poster child for how bad fair gaming can get in Scientology. And her life story really is a success in overcoming that and, and uh, flourishing and prospering, as they say in Scientology. Uh, moving on past Hubbard's nonsense. As far as uh, TLE causing paranoia, I don't know clinically that, that TLE is related to an actual, you know, that, that it would be related to causing clinical paranoia. But what I do understand from temporal lobe epilepsy, and that is an epilepsy of the temporal lobes on the sides, uh, which can affect a person's ability to think rationally about the subject of religion, commitment, fulfillment, um, and often is associated with people who have temporal lobe epilepsy often have religious epiphanies when they are experiencing a, an epileptic seizure. Again, this is as I understand it, and if I'm wrong, feel free to correct me in the comment section, but this is what I understand it, is that uh, a, a seizure episode when a person has TLE is very different from, say, a grand mal seizure when a person has other forms of epilepsy. And the epileptic episode or the seizure episode can um, be associated with a religious epiphany or moments of religious you know, grandeur and delusion. Uh, people have thought that they were God during these moments and, you know, go tearing down the street and, and telling people that they are the Lord God and, and people should obey them, et cetera, et cetera. And they get in these like very, very delusional states. Hubbard's epiphanies didn't seem to go in that direction or episodes, but I do believe that he truly thought, uh, probably because of this, that he was a figure of great importance, that he had a destiny or a fate uh, to be great and to slam his name into history and to be this, uh, you know, monumental religious figure who would change the entire world. Uh, he wanted to and had ideas that his work could be considered greater than the Bible or any other religious, uh, major religion in the world. Uh, this is how L. Ron Hubbard approached things. And when you truly believe something like that about yourself and about your movement, um, then I don't see, I mean, it seems to me very natural that paranoia or vindictiveness, which is really, I think, more the word that applies to how L. Ron Hubbard thought of or approached fair gaming of Paulette Cooper and other critics of Scientology, is a, is a vindictive, vengeful kind of attitude that he had. And I believe, I, I really think that he thought he was saving the world. Uh, you know, and we've, of course, talked about that at length. That's <laughs> the save of the world, man. So, um, so he thought that anybody who was getting in his way, who was criticizing his work, who was trying to decry it or tell people not to do it, were actually enemies of mankind. I think that was his mindset. And he, of course, wrote about it that way. And, and I think he wrote what he actually thought. Um, and that it wasn't just, you know, part of the con or something. I think he really thought he had this mission and these people were uh, getting in his way. Now, that was not 
you know, like people, you know, he had his ups and downs and his waverings and his sort of schizophrenicness. I'm not saying Hubbard was clinically schizophrenic as we understand split personalities or anything like that. I'm just saying that he would vastly pop, you know, back and forth. One day he could be a tyrant, the next day he could be a real nice guy, you know. He had he had some pretty wide mood swings. So I don't know that he was always 100% on course on this mission he was on, but I know that it was part of his persona and part of his uh, worldview. So, you know, so I think that's kind of what drove his, uh, his anger, his ire towards critics uh, was this, you know, this vindictive idea that these people were getting in the way of him saving the world. You know, and, and from that point of view, of course, it makes total sense. It's not a, you know, if you were on some course of action where you thought you were going to be benefiting a whole lot of people and somebody was uh, criticizing you or getting down on you or something, it makes total sense that you might be a little pissed at them and want them to shut the hell up. Um, and that was where Hubbard was coming from. I'm not saying Hubbard was morally right. I'm saying it's understandable what his viewpoint would be. His, you know, that doesn't mean it's a true viewpoint. It just means I get where he was coming from. Okay, so I hope that answers your question. Let me know if uh, if it doesn't. Kyle Howarth, I have seen the updates regarding the lawsuits against the Church of Scientology, and I'm curious what steps the Aftermath Foundation or others may take after the case is won and the church is damaged as I hear that David Miscavige is missing. How does Scientology explain that one away? Hey, Kyle, okay, let's not be too overly optimistic here, okay? David Miscavige is not missing. Uh, he is setting things up so he doesn't necessarily have to appear in public as often as he has, but he's around, you know, he's probably at Flag or, in, uh, you know, flying around in the Scientology world somewhere. His whereabouts, as I've mentioned before, are the most well-kept secret in Scientology, so, you know, he's always missing in that regard, but I'm not at all concerned that David Miscavige has gone underground or is taking off or there's, you know, I see no indication of that right now. And if I'm wrong, I'm happy to eat crow, but that's how I see it right now. Uh, I think he's continuing on with business as usual. Scientology is not stopping what they are doing. I don't see that he, I, I haven't seen any behavior on his part that indicates to me that he's cowed or freaked out or, you know, freaking out or, you know, anything like that. And I'm not going to assume that he's in a mental state or condition that I haven't seen for myself because, you know, he's in another place. <laughs> You know, he sees the world from a very different perspective than you and I do. And I don't think he thinks Scientology is on the brink of destruction, uh, not given the fact that they have all the resources and money and, and power that they have right now. We're, you know, we're working so hard to expose all these abuses, to expose the, you know, to, like the, on the season finale of Aftermath, get motion happening with Danny Masterson's case for the, you know, the, the, the poor victims uh, and, you know, get their day in court so that can be sorted out. Um, you know, these other lawsuits that are happening are great. I mean, really great. And we really, really hope that Scientology finally gets taken to task. But that is a years-long process. And anybody who has some idea otherwise really needs to touch reality. This is, we are nowhere near the end of Scientology. Uh, you know, uh, Us Magazine aside, that's not what's happening right now. 
And we need to be cognizant of that fact because we've got a lot more work to do. That's how I look at it, right? I'm not, there's no laurels being rested on right now, I don't think by any of us. And, um, and we got to gear up and we got to get a lot more work done. So, so these lawsuits that are rolling out, uh, there's a lot more still to come on those, a lot more. Uh, so that news is far from over. And, uh, but it really has, this whole thing has really just gotten going. So, uh, so that's kind of how I see things at least. So um, when it comes to, um, you know, what are we going to do after the cases are done? Well, that's years from now. So I don't think anybody's really particularly planning. I also am not on the board of the Aftermath Foundation, so I'm not privy to anything that's going on internally with the Aftermath Foundation. I am merely an outside supporter of that group, and I work, I've worked with them to help people like Bree, you know, who um, what I interviewed on my channel here. So that's, that's kind of my perspective on it. I am not, you know, pouring any champagne. I'm not, you know, there's no victory laps going on right now in, in the ex-Scientology community. And I, and I don't think that's, uh, I don't think anybody should look at the, this reminds me, I should, I should say this, uh, uh, you know, out loud also. Um, you know, Scientology didn't bring about the cancellation of Scientology in the Aftermath as a show. It was a decision on, you know, on Mike and Leah's part to, to not try to produce more episodes. It wasn't that Scientology got to A&E, at least not per any information I have. But I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. So, um, so they're moving on to do whatever it is, you know, Mike and Lee are planning on doing next, and we're all moving forward with our work. Um, but that's not, you know, the fact that Scientology in the Aftermath is over as a show is not a Scientology victory. It was a necessary thing that, get done, that got done to expose a certain amount of Scientology's abuses and nonsense, and now we have more work to do. You know, and that's, and that, the, the beautiful thing about going clear, Scientology in the Aftermath, uh, the work we do with YouTube, is that, that those are permanent pieces of content that are out there that are always going to be out there. Anybody from, from now on into the future can see that content and, you know, know to avoid the hell out of Scientology. And that's what's happening right now. But Scientology's not, you know, in a position where it's uh, on its last legs. It's still got plenty of second gen, third gen, fourth gen members that it can, you know, massage and work over. Cannibalizing their existing field is what it was called when we were in Scientology. And it was a bad thing. You're supposed to be getting new members in. And I'm sure that they are not doing that. So if there's any kind of concern or worry in Scientology, it's probably wrapped up around that, about the fact that they're having such a hard time getting new members in. But, um, but all the actions and activities of Scientology are continuing full bore. So we've still got, you know, plenty of work to do here. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there. And I hope that uh, all kind of paints a picture of hope and, you know, and still a lot of hard work to do. There's no, you know, we're not, we, we haven't failed in any way. And I, and I want to make sure you guys know that Scientology is not winning this fight. It's just, it's a long battle. <laughs> so, all right, there you go. Travis, please check out this cover story from the most recent issue of Us Weekly. How do you think Scientology will handle this piece? For the viewers who don't know, Us Weekly is sold at the checkout stand at most grocery stores, and this story is on the cover of the most recent issue. 
The cover prominently accuses Scientology of stalking women who have accused a Hollywood actor of rape in unambiguous terms. The headline also asks, will this be the end of Scientology? It seems to me that Scientology can no longer control the flood of bad press coming from mainstream and tabloid press. Is this a fair assessment? Do you think Scientology will sue Us Weekly? Do you think the mad midget, Miscavige, is aware of this Us Weekly deal? Do you think that OSA is now trying to make life hell for the Us Weekly staff now that this article has run? Thanks for the question, Travis. Um, actually, no on pretty much all the above. In alignment with the last answer that I gave, I think that the amount of press that's coming out about Scientology then that has been coming out for the last many years very clearly shows that the media is no longer afraid of the Church of Scientology or its uh, long, you know, his historical reputation of going after uh, any media outlets that try to attack or criticize it or report on it. Um, that effort on the part of Scientology has died down almost completely. I don't know any suits or any action Scientology takes except writing letters now, you know, saying, hey, that's not true, and you guys are just a bunch of bigots, and they're just a bunch of bigots, and they're just all a bunch of lies, and you better print this as part of your story or, you know, there's going to be hell to pay, right? And that's about as, as tough as they are now with media. And the reason for that is not because Scientology has particularly changed or softened its approach, it's because they don't have the resources to go after every single media outlet that has been taking them on. It, they're just overwhelmed now. Uh, and, and with good reason. They have been doing a lot of bad things. And they have built up, a, you know, this historical track of abuse and, and, and fair gaming and, and a lot of, you know, criminality and nonsense. So, you know, now that that is finally, uh, that the cascade is going where, you know, now we can really freely talk about this stuff without Scientology being a big bully and coming along and shutting everybody up over it. Um, the floodgates are open, but now they're so open and it's so common to see bloggers and media outlets go after Scientology that there's just, it's just too numerous for Scientology to deal with. And they don't have the resources, even if they have the money, they don't have the personnel to deal with covering everything and everybody, right? And this is one of the big reasons why I always laugh when commenters, you know, write me on YouTube or send me emails and like, I was too afraid to write a comment on your channel because I thought Scientology might come after me. And I'm always, I, you know, I'm just laughing now because, you know, there's no reason to be afraid of Scientology that way. They're, they do not have, uh, you know, those those kind of resources don't exist, right? So you're, you're safe if you want to write a comment on my channel or on Facebook or social media or anything like that. There's, you know, there's very little chance that Scientology as an entity is going to notice you and they're certainly not going to start spending money to come after you just because you write a critical comment or two. You know, it's going to take a lot more work than that. So... Um, so no, I don't think that Scientology is going to sue us weekly for asking whether this is the end of Scientology. Um, and I don't even know if Miscavige is aware of every single cover story that occurs on Scientology media-wise. I'd, I'd have a question about that. I wouldn't be sure. I could see how he could, but I could also see how some of that might be filtered in terms of what ends up on his desk. I don't think he wants to see 
every single bad article about Scientology. I don't think that's how he fills his days. I think he tends to, you know, kind of leave that to the OSA guys to do their little attack dog deal. But otherwise, you know, he doesn't want to be bothered with it. He's got other things that he's dealing with. So uh, that, I think, right, I could be completely wrong about that. For all I know, maybe he, you know, posts the cover of every single magazine. He's got Rolling Stone and Us and, and all these other magazines that publish anything bad about Scientology. And he just takes a gun and target practices on them all day. I mean, he could be doing that too, for all I know, right? I'm just sort of conjecturing here. Uh, but I don't think that that is how he spends his time. I just, you know, so there you go. Norman Snarky. I'm a never-in, but a long-time Scientology watcher. I've heard about IQ tests being administered in the Sea Org. Since Scientology can supposedly raise IQ, do ESO members have to prove that their IQ has improved to qualify for certain posts? Could you talk in general about how IQ tests are used and administered inside the Sea Org? Thanks. I love your name, Norman Snarky. I think that's one of the best names ever. Uh, okay, so... Uh, IQ tests. All right, so Scientology has an IQ test in the same way they have a personality test. It was, I, I believe it's self-created within the world of Scientology. They have two, maybe three different versions of it, but it's the same format and, and, and rundown of the test, which is, I think it's 80 questions, uh, multiple choice, and after you've taken it a few times, you definitely learn all the answers as you go over it, over and over it. You're not allowed to look at anything or reference anything while you're taking the test, but of course afterwards you can. And there's some math and a few calculations, so you get some scratch paper when you do it. It's a half-hour timed test. And uh, so you, it doesn't, the, the time you take to do it doesn't matter, but you have to get it done within half an hour or as many answers as you can. There's a handicap for female. I, th I, think, uh, I think women get uh, like an extra 10 points or something on it uh, or get 10 points subtracted. I can't remember exactly, but there is a difference between males and females on grading the test. And it is definitely used for, within the world of the Sea Org, it's used for um, qualification for, post for certain postings, mainly executive postings or promotions. Um, and IQ is, you know, it's not a big deal to make the IQ test go up in Scientology if you haven't taken it too many times because you take it and then you take it again and then you take it again, right? And that can happen if they're trying to wildly get IQ tests up. But they try to maintain some semblance of integrity with it, you know. Uh, but at the same time, if somebody needs to get promoted, then that score needs to come up right? So they might do whatever. They might give the guy a session, you know, or they might, you know, they're not going to get so bold that they're going to take the test and have the guy study it or, or word clear it or something like that, right? They don't, they're not, I've never, I never saw instances that blatant of trying to adjust an IQ score. Generally, there are ranges, I think, of acceptable IQ tests. I think you have to be above a certain level in order to hold a, an executive post, and I think you have to be above a certain level to be on staff at all. But I don't remember the numbers. I'd have to look that stuff up. I, I didn't do that before this, this episode here. Um, 
And uh, otherwise, the IQ test is really just used as part, as part of three tests that are done at the public level in order to get people to convince them that they should join Scientology or that they have improved with Scientology. It's, a, um, it's graphed as part of the personality graph. So when you do an OCA or personality test, you get, I think it's 10 points that get graphed from minus 100 to 100. And then also on that graph, they'll, they'll graph the IQ figure. Um, I, I, you know, so that's, or at least the IQ figure will be listed on the OCA itself. Maybe not as a, as a graph line, but it, the, the figure will be on there. So that's just another way that they kind of try to, you know, get you in with their silly tests. Uh, convincing you that they are scientific in their approach, right? When IQ is anything but. IQ is a completely bogus thing. Uh, IQ testing is a whole industry. It's kind of similar. I, I think I talked about it a little bit when I, in the video that I made about the personality test, about how difficult it is to write tests that actually can take into account dishonesty, false answers, bad answers, misunderstood answers, and still give you an accurate result, damn near impossible, right? How do you account for all those things? Uh, and then how do you account for them and come up with a scientific standard of accuracy for intelligence? You know, I mean, if you really think about it a little bit, especially cross-culture, right? How do you rate intelligence in an African native who has never been exposed to hardly any Western culture and yet is a human being with intelligence, how do you measure that intelligence the same way and compare it to the intelligence of some guy who grew up in, you know, uh, college educated in Newark or something? You know, like, like how you, you need a standard if you're going to measure intelligence across humans <laughs> that's going to be able to test for those things, account for any inaccuracies or attempted deception, and give you an accurate and meaningful score that actually tells you something. You know, if you start, if you start approaching the problem from those, from those uh, perspectives, then you see that IQ is uh, almost a wholly arbitrary uh, figure that's come up with um, in different cultures at different times. You know, and it's uh, it's going to be pretty wild. So uh, there's a lot more I could you know I could get into all that, but I I, I think you get the point that I'm I'm kind of driving out there. So anyway, thanks for the question. Okay, guys, it is the return of flash answers. I finally accumulated enough to uh, throw some on the screen here. So let's do it. Tyler Sims. Are you a fan of any Nintendo games like Super Mario World or Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga? No, I'm not. Uh, we played um, some Mario uh, on our little uh, Nintendo little tiny box that I got Melissa for Christmas last year. Uh, but we got sick of it pretty fast, so I don't play too much uh, Super Mario. Kevin Zay. Are the private investigators that Scientology hires as part of their fair game practice normally Scientologists themselves? If not, do they only use certain companies? I don't actually know for sure, statistically speaking, how many are Scientologists and how many are privately contracted. Uh, I suspect many more are privately contracted than are Scientologists, but I do know for a fact that they do have a couple Scientologist uh, private investigators on their payroll. 
I, I met and interacted with them when I was in the Sea Org. So I know that's the case, but I, but I know also that they contract uh, more, you know. So, I, so my experience is that, that they're contracting more of them than they are using Scientologists, and I actually don't have any idea what company they're using. The Doig. Who is Larice Henley Smith, and is it true she is David Miscavige's mistress? And if so, is it true that he dumped Shelley for her as she was too working class for him now that he thinks he is some global leader in high society? <laughs> uh, the conjecture out there is awesome. Uh, that he dumped his wife because she was too working class. No, that's not what happened. We've talked about Shelley at length on this channel. I'm not going to regurgitate all that here, but... Uh, Lloris Henley Smith was David is David Miscavige's uh, personal secretary and or communicator. I think that's her official post title, which means she goes around with him everywhere, uh, enforces you know that things he's ordered to get done are getting done, um, and mainly just makes sure that his life runs as smoothly as possible, and also has the additional function of being his. Uh, message master through the phone so that he has a, a, a uh, layer of plausible deniability between himself and everybody else in Scientology. She's sort of the final layer of security for David Miscavige. He has many more below that, but she's the, the, the last resort, right? She would be the one who would be taking the heat for anything that he might have had texted out to somebody uh, and this was very uh, funny because some of these texts were laid out uh, on Tony Ortega's blog a few years ago. Uh, there was conversations between Mike Rinder, um, Tommy Davis, and David Miscavige sending orders down to them. But all the orders and texts were going from Larice's phone. So it looked like Larice was the one who was saying those things to, to them. And uh, therefore, you know, if it were to ever come out that, you know, all these texts were to come out, they could say, well, that wasn't David Miscavige. That was, you know, uh, Clarice. So anyway, that's that, you know, that's what I can say about that. Okay, guys, thanks very much for coming around and watching me maunder on here about these uh, answers. I hope they were informative for you and somewhat entertaining. Uh, please leave any questions, comments, or feedback that you have about my show, and especially any questions you might have that you want me to answer in the comment section of this video uh, and or on my um, Critical Thinker at Large, my MN Critical Thinking uh, blog. And um, I hope that, uh, you know, our vacation goes really well here, and I hope you guys are having a great life out there. So I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.